Yes, a lot to everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. And I think we've got a really interesting episode for everyone tonight. Joining us shortly will be Cliff B. He is one of the original Springsteen tapers. He first saw Bruce in 1974. He was at the bottom line in 1975. He was also at the Roxy that year. He was at the Boston Music Hall shows in 1977. This gentleman has seen it all, and he has some amazing stories. Oh, absolutely. You may not know his name, but you know his work. He's, he did a great service to so many Springsteen fans over the years. He had no idea what he was doing at the time, that he would be sharing these and preserving these amazing shows, but, but he did, and we're extremely appreciative. Yes, we really are. And with that, we want to get right to it. So Flynn will introduce our guest tonight. He's been seeing Bruce since 1974. His first show was actually the the Anne Murray uh, incident. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with. And we'd like to introduce Cliff to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. This is really a pleasure for us. And we're really fascinated by some of the things you were telling us before we started. And now we'll talk about for the audience. I, I wanted to start by asking you saw your first show in 1974. Obviously, Bruce was not a big name yet at that point. How did you discover him, and what brought you to his music? I saw Steve Simel's review of Greetings in Stereo Review, uh, and uh, it was named one of the albums of the year in 1973. I wrote it down on a yellow pad to make sure I went out and found a copy, and uh Went to a department store that weekend, found a copy under the S miscellaneous section, since Springsteen didn't have his own labeled uh, LP section. I'm probably uh, now leaving people under 50 years old in the dust going, what's he talking about? But uh, found the record, fell in love with it, grabbed uh, Wild and Innocent as soon as it came out, made a cassette for the car and played it nonstop through 1974. And, uh, you know, uh, went to see Bruce at uh, Central Park in uh, the Schaefer Music Festival. Uh, I think I had probably eight tickets. Uh, it was one of those things where I told my friends, you, know, you got to see him, you got to see him. And if you don't like it, you know, you don't have to pay for the ticket. But everybody liked it. Uh, Brewer and Shipley op- opened, then Bruce came on. That's a whole story. I won't get into it. It's been documented. And then, uh, you know, Bruce did an abbreviated set. Uh, didn't start with Incident, didn't, I think he finished with Giddies and did an encore of Rosalita. And then somebody came out and announced, as we're all kind of you know, just getting over the experience of Bruce, and Murray will be out in 15 minutes. And boy, people started booing and people started leaving. <laughs> and uh, my best rec- recollection, which I've confirmed with a few of the friends of mine that were at the show, is three quarters of the people left. That is, of course, a very famous story. And she had actually argued to go on, according to Bruce Bass, as the headliner because she said, I'm bigger than this guy. She'd never heard of who Bruce was. And that backfired really badly on her. Now, I've read that it was her management. Uh, You know, she was managed by Shep Gordon, who there's a phenomenal uh, uh, documentary about him called Supermensch. But, uh, 
you know, he, he had a local guy that uh, was kind of, I heard pushing uh, that uh, she was, that the show hadn't sold out and therefore she should be the, the main act since she had the hit. <laughs> yeah. That did not work out too well for her. So did you stick around for her set? No. <laughs> we were we were in the group of people right. that were marching out. <laughs> wow. Well, now you well, also saw two more shows uh, in 74. Uh, you saw uh, Avery Fisher. And the thing about that one is that there was a stage collapse. Now, you were there. Can we you, were uh, right there. We were mm-hmm. on the we were sitting about 20 rows back on the aisle on the left side with Clarence in front of us. And either when Sandy started or quarter of the three started, we rushed up to the stage. So we were, you know, two or three people deep at the stage when all of a sudden the speakers on the left side collapsed and the two rows of seats right next to me, the people were gone. They all dropped six feet. (laughs) They were a temporary floor there uh, where there were a couple of rows of uh, seats that just the People went down and, you know, obviously nobody seemed to be hurt. And then if you listen to the uh, the tape of that show, you can hear at the end of quarter to three, somebody coming out and saying, please move to the back of the auditorium. Please move to the back. <laughs> and that's because they were you know, going to try to make sure they could get people out of the uh, the hole they were in. Did Bruce have any reaction or any band members? Look I don't at and go- think they knew what was going on. Uh, I think I, I had written uh, maybe Bruce Space that they abruptly ended quarter to three, but I have since checked and the, it wasn't any kind of abrupt ending. And it was actually a fairly lengthy quarter to three for that period of time. I didn't see Bruce until 1984 and Flynn didn't see him until 88. Uh, I'm guessing a lot of our listeners probably saw him the earliest on the River Tour and most later than that. So I think what we're all wondering is, what was it like to be in the room with this young, scrawny guy on stage? You even saw the band with Boom Carter and David Sanctious. What was it like to see this band and experience what you did at these shows? Yeah, it's, Central Park was the first time. Didn't know what to expect. Just you know, thought it was a great show. There probably there's no, there's no set list. There are no tapes uh, because my friend Joe's VW. Beetle broke down. Otherwise, he would have recorded that show, but uh, it never got recorded. Uh, so uh, it, it's hard to say. I do remember, though, that you know, the, uh, there's only a few songs that I heard in my lifetime, the first time that just stuck in my head. And at that show, it was Jungle Land. Just had, had never heard anything like it. Uh, called my friend at Columbia Records, uh, worked in the accounting department there the next day and said, we saw Bruce last night. He did this song called Jungle Land. It's unbelievable. You know, <laughs> Avery Fisher was that was the first time, uh, you know, with, the, uh, you know, inside uh, with Bruce coming out with Suki on stage in a long white dress with the violin and opened incident, you know, with Roy was on piano that night and, you know, started in and then Suki hit the violin and then Bruce had seem to remember having a white sleeveless t-shirt on and shades. And it just, that was magical. So that show just was like nothing I had seen. And then the show that, you know, I'm probably maybe the one that got quoted as saying the greatest show of all time. And I I still can't say it wasn't 
was Westbury Music Fair in 75 with the rotating stage and, uh, you know, Bruce doing the full set with uh, uh, Jungle and Kitty's Back End, New York City Serenade, each one being 15, 20 minutes long. And that's when it hit me like, okay, this is the best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> at that point, Bruce's career was kind of hanging in the balance uh, at, at Columbia in terms of uh, he, the record sales weren't doing well, and he was the, the third album was a make-or-break moment for him. Right. Could you kind of feel that going into 75, and especially when you hit the, when, when the bottom line stand began? Yeah, certainly not at Westbury. You know, Bruce just seemed to be having a ball. Uh, and, uh, you know, the bottom line was, uh, you know, I had seen Providence before that. That was a big disappointment when there was no Suki and none of those three epic songs were played. But that may have had something to do with it, it, it being outside as well. But uh, for the bottom line, you know, it, it was the people that had seen him before lined up. You know, at the bottom line, you lined up outside. It was staying, uh, you know, just uh, first come, first serve on the seating. So, uh, but, you know, I never, I don't think anybody had that feeling. I don't think anybody thought, knew that Bruce was un, under any kind of pressure. And, you know, the bottom line was just people were excited. And then the last two nights after the radio broadcast, it was big time excitement. For the, the Saturday and Sunday lineup at the bottom line, uh, you know, where there was a standing room uh, line across Fourth uh, Street, you know, that might have been ten or fifteen people deep the first few nights. Saturday and Sunday, it was thirty, forty people at least. I would say, just you know, with the hope of trying to get in for part of the show. <laughs> How many of the bottom line shows were you lucky enough to see? Five. Wow. <laughs> And were you at the broadcast? No. Uh, we were, uh, 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 we had tickets for the late show that night. So I started recording it on my home recorder. I only got a call the afternoon to tell me, hey, do you know Bruce is on the radio tonight? And I said, I didn't know that. So I set up my home recorder with a 90, 45 minute cassette in it and then called my sister in law, uh, who luckily had a Nakamichi tape deck, so she had good equipment. And I wow. said, hey, Bruce is going to be on tonight. Can you record starting, you know, 45 minutes into the show or half? Actually, I think I asked her to record, uh, you know, uh, maybe. A, yeah, I, I think I may have been home for the first 45 minutes, then flipped the tape and then told her to get started. But luckily, we both recorded all of the commentary before and after the show, because I think those are the only recordings that exist. Of that commentary, I don't think the station copy that has since come out, which is by far the best quality recording, I don't think the station copy had all the commentary. But luckily, the, the tape my sister-in-law made played all the way through Alice and Steele, the Nightbird, you know, coming on after the uh, the guys at the NEW had signed off. Yeah, and the, the the comments that Bruce had afterwards, where you're talking about being a like he was a prize fighter, that's yes. uh, that's pretty uh, that's pretty fun to listen to, and it's, 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 it's I feel like it's been lost over the years. And Dave Herman couldn't get his name straight. <laughs> <laughs> Flynn mentioned that Bruce was under immense pressure with the label after those first two records, and obviously we know the recording of Born to Run was really hard on him. So he had been through a lot that year. Did you sense a difference watching his performance in terms of his confidence level than you had seen in 74? 
Probably a little bit. You know, he grew professionally. They all grew. Uh, you know, the bottom line is a fairly small stage, but uh, Bruce managed to uh, still be pretty active and jumping around and getting on top of the piano and <laughs> doing some mugging behind the cast iron poles, uh, columns that were on the stage. So uh, he, he was having a lot of fun with it. Now, what was it like to to see Bruce explode the way he did in 75 after you were basically one of the one of the first fans to, to really get into him. Oh, it, it was great. Uh, you know, after that, uh, we, we were luckily lucky enough to, uh, get to see him in the homecoming show in Red Bank. I got a call from that friend of my Joe, who's a legendary, uh, uh, collector of, uh, Bruce, uh, t- recordings that, uh, they had just announced the show in, uh, Red Bank, New Jersey for the next night until I wanted to come with him. So I got to go to that show, and that that was Bruce was just on fire, being at home, uh, you know, before going out to Los Angeles to uh, try to uh, make the uh, the West Coast people, uh, you, you know, uh, learn who he was. Uh, so that that was incredible. But uh, you know, we then went to the all five of the shows at the Roxy, incredible, uh, and uh, and and saw those, and that was just you know that was one of the best decisions I ever made. And, you know, didn't have Ticketmaster or uh, anything on the internet back then. So, uh, you know, I called the Roxy uh, to find out if uh, they had any uh, tickets, you know, how I could do it. And there was a limit of two tickets per customer. And she said, you just have to send in a $10 money order. And uh, I uh, I sent in seven requests under seven different names and addresses. <laughs> <laughs> and ended up with seven pairs of tickets. So uh, I I took my friend from Columbia who lived near me in West Hempstead. He was out in L.A. with uh, Sony at that time. Well, Columbia at that time. So I took him and his wife, and uh, we ended up with an extra pair of tickets we uh, sold to somebody in line that, that was hoping to get them when they showed up for the club. But uh, those shows were pretty amazing. And, you know, the final night, he only did one show, and we hung around with a bunch of other people after the show for a few hours just talking about how great it was. And My wife was uh, out talking to Mark Brickman, the lighting guy who was hitting on her, and, uh, <laughs> and she told him, I mean, he told her, hey, you know, Bruce is going to be on the cover of Time and Newsweek tomorrow. So uh, that's we were probably the first fans to find out about that. That night uh, after the show, we finally then uh, headed back to the hotel and stopped at an IHOP on, uh, I think, Sunset Boulevard or Hollywood Boulevard. And we were in there with maybe another couple. It's probably two in the morning. And in comes Bruce and uh, his girlfriend and Mike Appel and his girlfriend. Bruce walks right by me, looks at me, and just kind of laughs because he had seen me in the front row every night. or at the front <laughs> table every night. I said something stupid like, "Are you following me around?" You know. <laughs> so he he did kind of know you then. Yes. And, and then uh, two months later, uh, we were at uh, Patty Smith's opening shows at the Bottom Line in New York right after Christmas. And after the, we did the same thing uh, that we had done at the Roxy, and, and the Bottom Line uh, had tickets to both shows, so they let us stay in the club after the first show was emptying out. So uh, we're sitting there waiting, and we see Bruce and uh, Karen, his girlfriend, 
sitting right at the front table. So I walked up to him and said, hey, Bruce, remember me from, you know, the Roxy, da, da, da. And you know, he says, yeah, hey, how you doing? I said, Bruce, I'm a desperate man. I've been running ads in the local newspapers trying to get tickets for New Year's Eve in Philly, and nobody has any. And I said, do you have any you can sell me? And I think he gave me the cocktail napkin. I don't remember what piece of paper I wrote on, but he said, hey, write your names down, and I'll leave tickets for you. So oh, wow, uh, comes New Year's Eve, it's horrible weather. And I'm working at Fort, in Fort Lee, New Jersey, right at the GW Bridge. My wife met me and we got in the car and it's cold rain as we're heading down the Jersey Turnpike. Then it turns to sleet as we're getting you know midway through Jersey. And by the time we hit the Franklin Bridge going into Philly, it's snowing. And it never occurred to us... I. I wonder if those tickets are really going to be there. <laughs> but they were. <laughs> he had two tickets at the box office for us. Pretty good seats. <laughs> oh, nice. And uh, so the New Year's in Philly just kind of capped it all off. Uh, it was was that, you know, all his uh, ticket prices were five bucks until then. And the New Year's Eve tickets were 10 bucks a piece. So that was a big deal. But, they all had, other than Bruce, everybody had a white tuxedo on. <laughs> Miami Steve yeah. got sick, was sick, I guess, to start the show, but he ended up having to uh, bail out halfway through the show. Now, before we get to the specifics of New oh. Year's Eve, one of the things that took place also at the Roxy stand, and I, you've said we can discuss this, you uh, taped those shows, correct? Yes. Yeah, after the Born to Run shows, uh, and after Born, uh, Jungle Land got released, I was out to New Jersey uh, getting lunch, and uh, WNEW played a live version of Jungle Land from 1974. And I couldn't believe how great that was. I got back to my office, called in a couple of ads to the local uh, uh, newspapers that, that were in the the Aquarium and the Good Times, that were in all the bars, and ran an ad saying, did somebody record this? You know, I'm I need to get a copy. And a couple of days, days later, I get a call from this guy from Jersey named Joe. And he said, no, I didn't get that, but I have a bunch of tapes of uh, Bruce that uh, he did radio broadcasts, and I taped some shows. And so we got together. He showed me the little recorder he used. I bought one and had that with me uh, when I went to the Roxy. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known any better that you could do that sort of thing and actually right. three of the five recordings of the roxy the recorder was on the stage under my blue uh hoodie which we did i had a blue hoodie just like bruce used to wear back in those days uh and, and had the hoodie on top of the of the recorder which you know i just used the built-in mic but uh it, it got you know d decent recordings for the time yeah yeah, for I personal use and, and, and trading with friends only. <laughs> we never traded with bootleggers or charged any money for them. That's that's the that's the way to do it. Now, but you did. But luckily, I captured the the second show on Saturday uh, when uh, Bruce was doing you the, the whole bit in quarter of three about you talking to me, and reportedly uh, De Niro and Scorsese were in the audience that night and. Uh, 
you talking to me became De Niro's catchphrase <laughs> from Taxi Driver a year later. <laughs> now, now, you were telling us earlier that you did have a little incident at, at the Roxy, though. Yeah, we also uh, took pictures. So coming into the Roxy, uh, uh, I guess the, first, the second night, I had a camera bag uh, that had um, a good camera at the bottom, my tape deck, and then some stuff of my wife's, and then a cheap camera at the top. So they checked bags going in, and that was the time when you know they were announcing no photography or no photography during the first song. And it was weird. You never know what the rules really were. But uh, at, so at the Roxy, they, uh, they, they saw the camera, and they said, oh, you can't have that. We'll, we'll hold this for you. So uh, I said, okay, you know, it's, took our seats right at the front table and got my recorder going and then uh, uh, started uh, taking pictures with the good Nikon camera we had that we had bothered, but, but borrowed from uh, uh, my sister-in-law. And uh, that's when my wife said, oh, they spotted you and they're coming. <laughs> and if you listen to the recording of the that show, you can hear the hubbub going on with uh, my wife talking to me. <laughs> and uh, so I got the camera down and uh, uh, under the table, quickly got the film out. But before they got there and then handed them the camera and said, oh, sorry, guys, I didn't know. And uh, then after the show, went to pick up the, the, the two cameras and he handed me the, 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 the good icon camera. And I said to him, I, I bet you guys took the film out, didn't you? And he said, I knew you took it out before you gave it to me. <laughs> they, they knew all the tricks that you guys did. <laughs> so we uh, I, th th didn't get great uh, pictures from uh, the Roxy. I've got maybe a dozen of them. Now, getting back to New Year's Eve for a moment, that, of course, is one of the Springsteen Archive releases. And in fact, we're going to be discussing that for our subscribers next month because it's the third release and we're taking them in order. And it's spectacular recording. <laughs> it is. And one of the things I want to ask about is the slow version of 10th Avenue that was played only at that Tower Theater stand. I thought that was Since great. I've played that played that back many times. And I've, uh, just, uh, I thought it was, you know, that was one of the great things about going to see Bruce, as we all know is uh, you know every song you know is you know has different versions you know in thunder road you know when the going back to the bottom line i never knew that you know he'd do thunder road just on the piano it got me emotional <laughs> but the 10th avenue was like that like i just never expected that hi i'm hal schwartz from number the brave and i want to tell you about our exciting new sponsor distro kid DistroKid is a service for musicians that puts your music into online stores and streaming services like Spotify. You keep 100% of your royalties. The DistroKid app is packed with features. You can check your streaming stats from Apple and Spotify, upload lyrics and song credits. You can also get notified via push notifications when you've earned royalties. With Mixia, a powerful tool for those without access to professional mastering engineers, users can put the finishing touches on their track in minutes. There's a simple interface that is easy to use, even if you're a novice creator. It's only $99 for a year with unlimited mastered tracks. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely. Send tracks to collaborators, booking agents, and anyone else you want to hear your work. 
Your music will stream at the highest quality so you can make a great impression. And the artwork files look great too. So check out DistroKid through None But The Brave special link and receive 30% off your first year. DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Once again, DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Thank you. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Well, as uh, 75 came to a close and you were looking forward to 76, uh, there was no album coming, but he did play. I mean, he, he toured. Uh, as we all know, there was the that was the lawsuit year and he had the tour to, to make money. And and he played a bunch of shows at the at, in Red Bank again. How did those uh, how did those compare to the October 75 show that you saw? Yeah, I thought to me, I didn't think they were quite as exciting or as good. It could be just because I had seen them so many times, you know, and they didn't change much, even though we got a, a few new songs. But uh, going back just to the uh, 75, the, the other great show that I was so happy to see in the archive series was uh, CW Post College. Right. And uh, there I was hanging around out front uh, and saw Mike Capel. And went over and introduced myself and again said, hey, I'm the guy that was in the IHOP after the Roxy shows. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, hopefully Bruce is going to be doing a lot more shows. And he says, well, yeah, he's got a couple of, uh, couple of shows that aren't really publicized we're working on. But uh, he gave me his phone number to call his office any time to get an update. So sure enough, I called his office. And found out he was playing the Choate Prep School at Wallingford, Connecticut in April and West Point Military Academy in May. And that's the only way I knew and therefore my friends knew that those shows were even being played because they weren't advertised. They were, you know, so, you know so, supposedly private shows for the uh, uh, attendees at those institutions. But uh the woman at Wallingford couldn't believe it when I called up and just said, can you hold 12 tickets for me? <laughs> but uh, she did. You know, and people came from New Jersey and uh, Philadelphia, uh, you know, with those, uh, the promise that those tickets would be there. But we ended up with my friends and, and Joe from New Jersey and his friend Ernie, who brought Ed Shockey, his friend from Philadelphia. So uh, Shockey was at that show, went back backstage to say hello to Bruce. Bruce couldn't believe this, that he was seeing a friendly face there. Now, you also recorded the Palladium shows. And, I mean, you've really done such a service for the fan base because, obviously, if you guys hadn't been doing this at the time, people like me and Flynn and so many other thousands of people would have never gotten to hear these shows. And they're important shows it, both in the development of his career and also because they take place in this lawsuit period. Right. Yeah. Those, uh, 
yeah, that's you know, those shows. Luckily, uh, I had, Joe had introduced me to a, you know, one of the prominent Dylan collectors, and uh, you know, I got to be friends with him, and he he taught me a lot of things about the you know kind of the higher end recording and open reel tapes. And he told me, he says, I have a friend of mine that uh, uh, you know was uh, what has ticked that wants to. Uh, Get re- or they both wanted to get recordings of the band in September at the Palladium. And this one guy was going out of the country for a while, and he said, can I loan you my Sony 152 uh, SD deck, the, you know, the top-of-the-line stereo recording deck of the day? And he said, could I loan that to you when you would record the band shows? I said, that'd be great. And then could I keep it until the end of the month? I've got tickets uh, for four Springsteen shows. And he said, yeah, that'd be great. So luckily for those shows, I had the better, uh, you know, the, a much better recorder and microphone. <laughs> and those were shows where, uh, you know, Gary U.S. Bonds came up and uh, sang on quarter to three. And uh, then the next night, Patti Smith uh, came up during Rosalita. Luckily, I was, uh, my wife was uh, holding the microphone while I was up at the, uh, near the stage uh, taking some pictures. So I got pictures of both uh, both of those incidents, not too many of Patty Smith, but uh, well, that, one that was pretty cool. Now, one thing I'm curious about, uh, I'm, I'm familiar with how big DAT decks were uh, by the time you got to the 90s. How big were the were these taping, were these uh, tape recorders at, at this point in 76? Uh, you know, about a three-inch thick Encyclopedia Britannica that weighed about the same. Okay. Good, you know, nine by nine by thirteen, maybe. Okay. And they, then they you took, they took six D batteries. That's so, hilarious. Uh, and and I used to stuff extra D batteries in my tube socks, uh, just in case. So uh, it kept it was pretty heavy. Oh wow! And then then I guess security they were more concerned. Were they more concerned with alcohol and other substances, or did they? Focus on that kind of thing as well. You know, it, 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 my wife would uh, would bring a fairly big bag and throw a whole bunch of stuff on top of the recorder, so uh, nobody bugged her uh, all the times so we went in. And uh, but the uh, the fourth show, the first one in uh, November, the show was uh, she was sick, so I went in by myself and got it in. It didn't have a problem, and it had I think a second row seat. So I was really set up. I went in early, had the deck under my chair. And then I see a guy, a security guy with a uh, flashlight coming around. I said, oh, I'm, I'm in for it. And he gets to <laughs> me. He, lo- he looks under my seat and he goes, What's, let me look at that. And I said, ah, sorry, it's a tape recorder. He says, I don't care. I'm looking for bombs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey, you know, so use that security, use that to your advantage. <laughs> security said, "Hey, no problem here." So I got a good recording of that show. <laughs> and then, how how big was the microphone? Uh, yeah, the the Sony mic, you know, is maybe uh, eight or, eight or ten inches long. Was just a oh. a single head that was a stereo. Had one on each each side of the head, so it fit inside a tube sock. Okay. All yeah. right. Thank you. <laughs> I'm fascinated by this as well because it's like I was just saying. I mean, you guys probably didn't recognize this at the time that these tapes would 
really be around for decades. Did you did you ever mm-hmm. consider that that sometime fifty years later you'd be talking about the the tapes that from these shows in seventy five and seventy six? Never never imagined it. It really is crazy if you think about it, but it has been such a gift to the fan base. And in a way, I don't know if you've ever heard from the organization or, you know, there's ever been any involvement in that capacity, but really they should be trying to get all of the masters from these tapes for their own archives to make sure that all of this is preserved. Oh, they don't care. They don't care. (laughs) I I doubt it, but go ahead, Cliff. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, I have no reason to think that, and uh, you, you know, uh, there aren't, there haven't been any archive releases from '76, and uh, one of the guys that was with me in that group of twelve had a state-of-the-art recorder, great mics. Sat, you know, we all sat right. I didn't bring a recorder. I knew we were going to be, you know, first come, first serve. So I wanted to be sit, sitting up front, and I actually ended up sitting next to Obi was the first time wow. I met Obi. So I sat right next to her in front of the stage. But the guy that wanted to record it, uh, he was four rows back in the center, and he got a phenomenal recording. Uh, Gems has released it, so it's out there on Jungle Land and uh, Greasy Lake and, and all. But I talked to you know a friend of mine that's involved in the official releases, and said, why in the world don't you release that Wallingford tape? You know, it's phenomenal, you know, the job that they did in remastering it. That's right. The friends of mine were able to track down the, the, the taper of the show. I don't want to name him, so I have no idea what he's doing these days. But uh, they tracked him down, got the original cassettes, you know, remastered them, and just have a phenomenal recording that people would love to be able to buy. But the friend of mine that's involved in the uh, official production uh, 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 of the archive series said now they, they'll only release stuff that's multi-tracked. <laughs> we all understand it's not going to be the best possible quality. And, and look, I love a good quality tape. And the archive series, as we've discussed, is an embarrassment of riches. But they really should fill in these gaps. Yes, they would be great. You know, it's funny at the time when people had asked me about it, you know, recording, uh, you know, and I said, hey, if Bruce ever releases any of these tapes I've made, I will definitely buy them. And I have since bought every single archive release. So I don't know how many hundreds that is, but that's 20. And I buy the high definition versions. So that's 20 to 25 dollars times several hundred tapes. downloads that I've bought from Bruce. So I've put my money where my mouth is. I would do the same thing. They release it, I'm going to buy it. So yeah. even, even though I have all the, so many of these recordings via the magic of bootlegging or the audience versions. Yep. <laughs> and they're all uh, great. <laughs> a show you didn't tape, but that is very, very legendary. You attended the 1977 Boston Music Hall stand, including the final night, March 25th. Oh, those shows. What do you remember about that? Those were electric. I, the reason I didn't tape them is my friend who recorded those shows, uh, again, on, it's on all the download sites, and they've been remastered by the Gems guys. Uh, he had an in at the... Uh, uh, Boston Music Hall uh, box office. So 
he was set up with third or fourth row right in front of the speakers. You know, back then, all the speakers were on the stage. So yeah, you got the sound right there. So he recorded from that location. He knew that I was taking pictures. So he gets set me up with uh, third or fourth row dead center seats for the last three shows of the 77 stand. So I've taken, I took hundreds of photos, many of which have been published. And one of them was a cover shot on Backstreet's uh, magazine. Uh, Lawrence Kirsch has published several of them in his fantastic book, For You, Bruce. And uh, one of them is still on the Rolling Stone website that I captured the uh, uh, shtick they did. I think it was this third night. When uh, they brought a stretcher out, Bruce, you know, faked uh, having a heart attack in a quarter to three. And they had some nurses uh, come out with a stretcher. And he did a whole thing with, uh, you know, falling over on the stretcher. And luckily, I captured several pictures, including one with Bruce with his eyes crossed and his tongue out. And I think that's still on the Rolling Stone uh, website. (laughs) Those those are some fantastic pictures. I remember that. That that Backstreet's uh, issue, it had a great recollection of the of the '77 tour. And then, yeah. just just like uh, about 14 months later, you were at the three shows again in Boston at the start of the Darkness tour. Right. Uh, how how did they kind of compare? What were your your thoughts on those? Uh, again, you know, it's, I, I can't I can't say much bad. Uh, that, that they were fantastic because that was Darkness on the Edge of Town stuff. And uh, that, that friend of mine in, in uh, Boston that taped all the shows in Boston uh, was able to record Darkness on the radio. Boston uh, radio station uh, played a ver- uh, copy of the album two weeks before it was released. So he made a copy and put it in the mail to me. And uh, I got that. Uh, the first thing I did was uh, I heard Badlands. I immediately called up my friend Joe in Jersey and said, you got to hear this. You can't believe it. It's unbelievable. <laughs> so I played him bad, Badlands uh, through the phone <laughs> and then was you know, so excited to be able to come and see that stuff live. I can't even, I can't remember why I recorded the first night and not the other two. But unfortunately, uh, I got stuck in tunnel traffic for two hours and missed the first six songs of the May 29th show and nobody else it was recording that. So the only version of that show is out there with uh, six songs missing. Oh, that's always frustrating. We didn't have GPS back then. So uh, <laughs> there was no, we, we, we just ended up in the tunnel and just sitting there. And I was so frustrated. <laughs> Occasionally I'll talk to people who saw Bruce in the seventies and going back and they didn't remain as big a fan as you have remained. One of the things that really struck me when we were prepping for this interview, you've continued to see Bruce regularly throughout all these decades. Yep. You know, had a, had a lull, you know, with two kids, had kids in 1980 and 1982. So I never saw any Tunnel of Love show, which I love that tour. But uh, I, I missed the, those shows that... And uh, p- picked up again in 92 when I could uh, start taking my kids to the shows. So uh, went through that that whole uh, uh, situation of bringing the kids to their first Springsteen show and having them fall asleep or not be too too interested. 
how did you view those shows in comparison to say the the ones in the, in the seventies? Uh, you know, not as special. Can't say they weren't. You know, that they weren't as good. Certainly, the band was professional, and you know, the ninety two ninety three band was exciting, and uh, you know, they brought their own you know talents to it. So. I enjoyed the shows and kept coming back. And uh, also, you know, I, I did see a number of shows in the 80s, you know, in, in uh, you know, some of the stadium shows, but they just weren't the same as seeing Bruce, uh, you know, in a three or 4,000 seat uh, hall where this, you know, you just had the great sound. You know, that was the, you know, where the earmarks uh, of Bruce's shows were just the incredible sound that uh, he just didn't hear with many other bands. So uh, yeah. as, as he got bigger in the 80s, uh, you know, wasn't as you know happy with the sound as, as I was, you know, having seen him in the Boston Music Hall. Yeah, as a taper, you're particularly plugged in, so to speak, to, to that aspect of, of the shows in themselves. Yeah, luckily for the three shows at Madison Square Garden uh, in 78, uh, uh, got to New York and uh, was just before we moved to Florida, so it was kind of our last hurrah. That was the other reason I didn't keep up with Bruce as much as we uh, lived in Boca Raton, Florida through the 80s. But at Madison Square Garden, uh, walking across uh, 7th Avenue, I saw a guy uh, uh, selling tickets and went up to him and ended up with second row tickets right in front of the speakers for the first two nights for 50 bucks a piece. So, Which I uh, guess that that was a lot of money at that time. Yeah, well, it was still a pretty good deal. For, it was worth uh, it. <laughs> yeah, so that was able to uh, you know get two very good recordings. And as hard as it is to believe, there was sixty thousand tickets sold to those three shows, and I got the only recordings. That was my next question. It sounds like you were the only one who got a recording. I don't know of any of any others. Nope, I've continue to look i you know i download what i see out there and uh, everybody is uh you know pretty much just remastering <laughs> my stuff and i assume those did get a a very proper treatment at some point with uh, proper transfer and and yeah, uh, a couple and of them i gave uh, jared hauser uh you know another legendary taper mm -hmm. uh, and collector uh I, I loaned them to him for a while, and, and he, he did the first kind of proper transfer. Um, and then uh, recently, I had uh, uh, re uh, transferred them again myself using another piece of hardware about a year ago uh, to a fellow uh, over in Europe. Uh, um, forget what his website is, but... It's like H.R. Bush or something like that. But he, he did a good job of, uh, you know, fixing up the sound and putting them out there. So there are, there are several versions uh, that are out and around. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that those shows, I mean, they should have had the, the production truck there for those. And it's surprising that they apparently have not or did not, yep. rather. Just before we wrap up, I want to get your thoughts on the reunion era. I see that you saw quite a number of shows. We actually attended quite a number of the same shows when the band reunited in 99 and 2000. Yeah, that, that was really special. So you felt the magic was still there because you went oh, back sure. 
all these years. And again, like I was saying, I've spoken to people over time where they were like, oh, we saw him at 75. It was never the same, you know, when you guys were seeing him. But you certainly don't feel that way. No, I think I kept an open mind to it. Uh, uh, similar to, you know, I'm really surprised that a few of my friends have soured on Bruce over ticket price issues. And that, you know, that whole business last year. And, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, I, I, I didn't take it personally, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we all know people that, that have soured on Bruce uh, dramatically because of that. And it just, you know, surprised me. So maybe I'm just, uh, you know, just have a more of an open mind and realize that things aren't going to be the same, but they can still be great. And the reunion sh shows were fantastic. Uh, you know, we saw uh, three of the shows at the Staples Center when he opened Staples. And uh, Las Vegas was uh, an amazing show at the, the MGA Grand. Uh, you know, it was a fairly small venue compared to what he was doing. And then for the final four shows, I went to New York on my own. My wife had some things going on. And I got tickets uh, for the final four shows uh, and uh, took a, few, a bunch of my uh, childhood friends or college friends to the shows uh, at the garden and uh, uh, didn't do that for the last night. I had to pay 500 bucks for a nosebleed seat, but I was sure that was, was a big there. ticket. I was sure glad I was there. And as you, if you guys were there, you'll remember, we you'll, I had just assumed I'd be able to go out in front of the garden and pick up some scalp tickets. But uh, the police weren't allowing anybody to be anywhere near Madison Square Garden because of uh, American skin. Yeah, they were very strict about the ticket transfers outside, that's for sure, even yeah. if they were at face value. But they wouldn't even allow people to uh, hang around outside the garden. It, it was oh. just desolate out there. There was nobody. You weren't allowed to stand and talk. Oh, I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, there were no tickets to be had there, so I had to deal with New York ticket brokers <laughs> and, and got taken to the cleaners, but uh, it was well worth it. Yeah, that was a night you had to be in the building for sure. It was really one of those very special nights that only Bruce can provide. And and the very end of that show with the Blood Brothers was yes. just such a stunning moment. I agree. Yeah, definitely one of my favorites, to say the least. Well, Cliff, thank you so much for joining us. This has really been <laughs> tremendous for us <laughs> to hear these tales from the 70s, to hear about taping. Uh, again, I, we can't thank you enough both for joining us, but also for allowing the fan base to hear these shows because Flynn and I come into the picture long after the 70s shows took place. So we would have never heard any of this except for the very limited amount of stuff that they released over time. And now, fortunately, with the archive series, there's a significant amount more, thankfully. But, you know, becoming a fan in 1984, and we just talked about the Winterland shows, the only way I had to hear this stuff was through the magic of bootlegging. Yeah. Well, if you, if you ever do get to talk with Joe, uh, thank him for returning, the, for, for answering that ad in the paper and offering uh, to uh, give me copies of tapes uh, that he had done, even though I had nothing at the time to share with him. Yeah, it's been an absolute honor 
to talk to you. You are a you're a legend uh, in the Bruce world, the Bruce fan world, or at least people should recognize you as such. Those, as Hal said, those tapes you did back in the day when very few people. I mean, maybe it was just you and Joe who were doing it, and you uh, you helped so many uh, people. Real, you know. <laughs> Uh, increased her fanaticism about his music. That is that is for sure. So we thank you tremendously. Uh, you're very welcome. Glad to do this. Once again, that was Cliff B sharing his amazing stories of seeing Bruce back in the mid seventies. And wow, I, he really makes me wish that I was a little bit older. <laughs> really remarkable stuff. We were very lucky to have him on, and just to think what he has seen. It really is crazy, and there just aren't that many people we could talk to who would have the experience of those shows and also be that articulate in describing them. So we, we again, really appreciate the fact that he talked to us. Yeah, it was incredibly humbling to talk to talk to someone who was there who did the taping to allow us to hear these recordings all these years later. And as I said earlier, it was such an amazing such an amazing service to Springsteen fans you know, for generations. And again, we really appreciate what, what he did and we appreciate him coming on and, and telling us about it. So we hope everyone enjoyed that. And with that, I'm just going to wrap things up. Number the Brave is presented by Evergreen Podcasts and produced by Bull Market Entertainment. Please check out our Patreon page for our additional offerings. We have our message board brave talk and we do all sorts of additional content throughout the month that's at patreon.com slash mbtb podcast and of course on twitter you can find us at mbtb podcast so thanks once again to cliff b for joining us and for hal schwartz on flynn mclean saying thanks for listening and we'll see you further on up the road thank you so much we'll be seeing you Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.